Good morning. Welcome to the Sativa segment. This is your host, Richard Chang. Um, today we are filming episode five of the Sativa segment. Before we get into it, um, I would like to acknowledge that Dads at Peace is fueling this particular episode. episode. Dads at Peace is a men's resource center that's based in Dallas, Texas. And if you want to find out more about Dads at Peace, go to the Dads at Peace page on Facebook. So today we're going to talk to someone in uh, the cons on the consulting side of cannabis. So a little bit different than the past. Um, his name is Travis Merchant. I've known Travis for a little while now, and we've had an opportunity to work on a couple projects together. Welcome, Travis. Hey, uh, Richard. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you can uh, make the time to make it onto the show. Um, thank you for the shirt. So for those of you who are watching, I'm, wa I'm wearing a... Um, the gift that Travis bestowed on me this morning, it's an Indica consulting shirt. And, of course, you're with Indica, right? Absolutely. And those shirts were hot off the press. I got them in stock yesterday. That's so you, awesome. You are the very first person to receive one. Well, I'm, I, I am highly appreciative of it. Um, so let's talk about you, okay? Um, let's start off with just talking about you. I've known you for a little while now. We've had an opportunity to work on a couple of things together. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, of course, a client of my, uh, of, um, we've been working together for a little bit and, but tell me a little bit about how you got into the cannabis industry and tell me a little bit about where you're from and, and, um, that may help the audience understand about your background and obviously how you built your, sure. uh, your company. Absolutely. Uh, I've got a pretty diverse background actually, as far as kind of how I, not only how I arrived in the industry, but how I came back into the industry. Okay. Um, I've been in, in it for a long time. I planted my first plant back in 1989, um, but my family and how I kind of grew up was traveling. My father was a traveling salesman, so I was literally born on the road, traveling through North Dakota on the way to South Carolina, and I've lived in over 40 states in the United States. So continually moved, continually did that, so I got to see a lot of the country and experience a lot of the different environments. And being in the cannabis industry, um, in, in the legacy, uh, legacy world, um, got to live across all different aspects of the supply chain. Um, in addition to that, my, my white label life uh, that I lived was working in a lot of really highly regulated industries. So initially, I worked in uh, actually tobacco, alcohol, things like that. So uh, worked on programs that were de developed to kind of uh, help, the, help those type of companies be able to operate and operate compliantly. Um, but be able to do that through a, a method of being able to generate revenue and really focusing on kind of market concepts. Go ahead. Okay, so let's 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 take a few steps back. Um, first of all, it's always interesting to meet people from the legacy side, yeah. right? Um, I don't know if you saw my last episode. I had a gentleman from that side as well. It's um, because you know this is an industry that's evolved over time. Absolutely, it certainly has evolved since even the short amount of time that I've been in it compared to someone like you. Um, but I guess let's back up to 1989. What compelled you to um, plant your first plant? Let's talk about that. I was initially fascinated with the plant itself, um, but I, I wanted to create some. Well, initially, I wanted to be able to not have the cost of having to spend money to grow or to, to buy and have product. So I wanted to learn on my own how to grow a high quality product and be able to do that for myself. And then um, 
in, in the first aspects of doing that, I became so fascinated with optimization and trying to understand how can I be better? How can I grow better? How can I, how can I grow larger? How can I do these things? And it, it kind of naturally, my brain naturally followed kind of a process of how do I scale? And that was where, um, again, initially it was just about figuring out about something I love, a hobby, something that I enjoyed, but it turned into a, an all-consuming passion. And really, uh, ever since, my mind has always been around kind of figuring out ways to make things better. So, just for the record, you do consume, or you did consume yes. at, that, at that time. Absolutely. Okay. So, you got into it, let's be honest, you got into it on the con uh, yeah. because you wanted to consume. Yeah. Okay. So, where, where was this? What state were you in? At that state, I was in California. Okay. So. so are you, are you, well, you lived in 40 different states, which by the way, for the record, uh, people always tell me that I live, I've lived in a lot of states, which is, I've lived in eight different states, mm -hmm. which is a lot for, the, is. Uh, for the average person, but you have me uh, beat by a mile, right? 40 different states. Where, where did you actually um, grow up the most? The most would be in actually uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis. I spent, I came back there several different times and, and spent oh. quite a bit of time of all the places to be. Yeah, you know, I practiced in Minneapolis. I for three do, years. as a matter of fact. Yes, I okay. know. I, I did that. That's that's another. So time. I ha yeah, I have something going on in Minneapolis right now for my legal practice. Um, okay, that's fascinating. I actually, you know, after all these years of knowing you, I, I didn't know that you spent any time in Minneapolis. But okay, so you spent a lot of time in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Spent some time in California, along with 38 different other states. You grew, um, you started kidding. growing in 1989, which is a long time ago. Um, tell me how it progressed from there. And uh, let's fast forward a little bit to, let's just say, in the last 10 years. Sure. Um, well, I had, uh, one, of my, one of my focuses or one of my specialties was, outside of the cannabis industry, um, was uh, experience having as far as what an experiential uh, event is kind of like. So I did with everything from production events to also working with retail chains, to working with banking, to working with things like that to really create that consumer experience. And I ended up being pulled from the audio, the audiovisual industry, which I was working in, and I happened to be the national account manager for uh, an organization called Infocom, which is the largest global trade organization for AV and IT. And I was lured into the fintech and banking world because the banking world was very stodgy and going into a, a branch of a bank was just like it was 30 years ago. You stand in line, you wait, it's very boring. And they wanted to create them and make them more like Apple stores or kind of create that, that environment. So I helped uh, work into that. I happened to be working for a California company that wanted to go into Texas. So I had moved from, at that time, Minneapolis and moved down to Austin, um, back to Austin. I'd lived in Austin back in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. But I went down there and it's funny that uh, I had gotten so burnt out trying to not only work uh, in very high stress jobs, but also in the financial and the banking world and the banking world inside of Texas, which is an extremely good old boy network. It's very close, very tight, yeah. trying to represent a California company. It was just an exhausting couple years. And I remember on my, uh, it was my birthday, I remember waking up that morning and just being so downtrodden and going, what in the world am I doing? I don't like this at all. What do I like? Boy, I miss cannabis. And I started Googling and I, like, I thought, what in the world's going on in Texas? And this was back in 2014 or 2015. Like what's actually happening in Texas? That was shortly after I got involved. 
And yeah. that was, I, I remember coming across you, but I also remember coming across uh, Patrick yep. and ending up start, starting to have conversation. And that was initially um, my reconversion into the legal side was coming together and helping to build a consulting IoT technology uh, component for that company that, that had brought me in. So I helped them launch um, that, helped them bring that to market, uh, ended up representing one of the at the time, one of the uh, most forward-thinking LED lighting companies uh, that we actually helped bring from Europe over to the US. And um, started working with uh, organizations all over the United States, or all over North America. Ended up working with eight of the big 16 in Canada to initially begin with. Um, and that was kind of what drove me to it, but it was, it was literally just waking up one day and saying, where's my passion at? Why am I doing what I'm doing if I don't enjoy it? And I realized that that was cannabis and I decided at that moment I was going to make, I was, I was joining the legal industry and I was going to make that what I did and I never turned back. Yeah, no, so it sounds like it was um, where you are today was really accumulation mm. of all these different life experiences because you've mentioned white labeling, you've, you've mentioned alcohol, you had some transitions along the way, um, got into LED lighting. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure it was pretty invaluable being in different segments within within the cannabis industry, because as you and I both know, it's a very supply chain driven industry. Very much right? so. You have upstream, you have downstream, you have midstream, you have ancillary third parties that's around, which uh, you and I are kind of in that mm -hmm. ancillary space, right? Because we're the third parties that help facilitate uh, the industry itself. Um, so what other experiences um, did you have um, do you think was critical to your growth? Sure. I think, oddly enough, one of them, I was also a touring musician for a period of time. And okay. learning the concept of tour management and production management, because much like in a... Uh, a an operation, a cannabis operation, there are things that are going on all the time in all different directions. And some days you could have 20 different fires coming at you and being able to deal with those quickly and understand that and be able to think on your feet and, and come to fast solutions that maybe are, are based around experience versus research, or maybe it's around research and experience to, to solve those things. But that's one aspect is being able to be able to see kind of a, a, a big 360 view or maybe an over the horizon view of, of what happens, the ripple effects that come from it and being able to be prepared for it. And so uh, the music world really helped, honestly helped me with, with that kind of mentality mm -hmm. of being able to kind of approach those things. Do you think the cannabis industry is a fast moving industry or a slow moving industry? I think it is both in a couple of different ways. I think every day it is, uh, Again, that, that experience, at least for, from an operator standpoint, um, you know, in, in an average company or an average business that's outside of the cannabis industry, you might talk to them, how was your week? Oh, it was good. Well, Tuesday, this thing happened, and boy, that was tough, and that got me through. You know, it really kind of threw me off for the week. When you talk to somebody in the cannabis industry, how was your week? Oh, well, Tuesday morning, this happened, and Tuesday afternoon, this happened, and thir you know, Thursday. So you've got 30 different massive things that are, that are coming at you to deal with. So it feels very fast. And it feels like there's constantly something that you're having to address, approach, deal with, solve. But when you talk about a lot of the the momentum of the industry, there's a lot of momentum, but there's still a lot of different right. different dams in the way of that stream. That, when you talk about it, that, that slows things down an awful lot. Right. So that was that. That's really where I was getting at. Um, is that it's a dichotomy of the two, right? Is that one on one hand, the laws, and of course. Being an attorney, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it through my lens, is that 
things change so quickly uh-huh. in jurisdiction to jurisdiction and sometimes even on the local level. But then conversely, um, it moves so slowly in other areas, right, i.e. federal legalization. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then when I speak with my clients, it seems like they're moving 100 miles an hour, but yet they're not in other ways. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic there. Um, so let's talk about your business partner. Who's your business partner? My business partner is Carsey Merchant, as a matter of fact. So. And, and who is Carsey Merchant to you? Carsey is actually my wife. Okay. So you chose your wife to be a partner. We did. Okay. Yes, we chose. And um, well, first of all, that's that that doesn't always work out with everybody, but it seems like you guys have really made it work. Yeah. We, we are, we are uh, very fortunate to get along extremely well in business and in our personal lives. But we'd initially met... Um, if it's okay to talk about it, we'd initially yeah. met at MJ Biz and yeah. we were both working in the industry. We happened to meet there, um, realized that we had extremely complementary skill sets and knowledge sets. And when we started talking, we realized that we knew an awful lot of not only similar people, but people that we both needed to know uh, that maybe we didn't know. And we started working on some projects um, separately and together. She would bring me into a project. I would bring her into things. And we started doing that. And after uh, a while, I realized not only how amazing she was, but I fell in love with her. And the following MJ Biz, I actually asked her to marry me. So that was... Wow. Well, so love conquers all. It does. As a matter so, of fact, it does. What a beautiful story. So she's your business partner. Now, what, what is she good at um, that complements what you... I mean, really, what, what are the two of you... Uh, bring to the table that makes Indica what it is. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Carsey's strengths, um, in, to begin with, she's brilliant. Um, probably the smartest person that I've, I've ever known. Uh, her mind consumes uh, compliance knowledge and operational knowledge, and she is so, so astute at being able to connect strings and be able to see exactly what happens when a decision is made or when a... When a uh, an initiative is taken inside of a company to realize what the ripple effect is on a compliance level. But also on top of that, she's one of the best compliance trainers and educators that I've ever seen. Um, so she really, she really, really handles that operational component when it comes to uh, the work that we do with licensed operators or even with ancillaries. Um, really handles it and takes my crazy uh, dreams and hopes and, and uh, ideas and strategies and turn, makes them feasible and makes them uh, executable and makes sure, again, that, that our clients are always as safe as they can possibly be when they come to their, their practices. Very good. Um, so did she get into it at the same time that you did, or who led, down, who, led who down down that path? As far as the industry itself, yeah, we have, again we were both in it. Um, we we had met. She had been consulting for a few years. Um, she'd actually worked for uh, one of the larger one of the well the largest uh, operator in Colorado and uh, was a compliance trainer educator. Worked uh, many different levels. Helped to write a lot of their curriculum, and had left there and gone on her own. So when I met her, she was uh, consulting and, and uh, you know, working with quite a few clients and variety of clients, um, but really working heavily around education and uh, helping, you know, help, helping uh, organizations do trainings. And um, I was working, again, mainly along the lines of revenue generation and around market strategy and around uh, just strategic things. So we realized that, again, being able to put those two powers together really made something that was unique to the industry because a lot of times people focus on one thing or they focus on one specific area, but they don't realize 
everything that you know you, you can as an example you can go in and change lights in a facility but there's a lot of ripple effects that come with just just swap, swapping out lights in a facility there's everything from change management to adoption to appreciation to the mood of the cut to the to the employees to what it actually does to your plants or you know again just as an example there's a million things to take into consideration having that that 360 view of it really gives us the ability to uh, quickly solve and come up with solutions that that work the first time sure and so let's let's transition our discussion a little bit about your company, okay? Um, on your shirt, it says Indican Consulting. That's, for the record, that is the name of your company. That is correct, Indican okay. Consulting, yep. So Indican Consulting is something that you started um, about, I want to say, maybe three years ago? Yeah, tw uh, 2020, I believe, so about a little over two years ago now, yeah. A little bit over two years ago. Yep. And so how did you, how did you and Carsey decide, hey, we're going to go down this path and we're going to start our own consulting company? That's a great question. And uh, it, it was a very kind of an arduous journey um, to get. Well, because we're... you guys both had jobs before. Yeah. I mean, where you still can concurrently do, but when, certainly when you came to me and said, hey, Richard, I need help, mm -hmm. you know, with X, Y, Z. Um, I was transitioning. Yeah, I was transitioning. Out trans of the, right. And because, um, you know, we both were involved with Pebble. Mm -hmm. um, I was a board member, and you uh, you were uh, you, you weren't there, mm -hmm. and so that's how I got to know you. Really, is a little bit more. Yeah, initially with yeah, yeah, a little bit uh, with a little bit more depth. Uh, but when you came to me and said I want to start this consulting company, uh, I really wasn't really sure what kind of consulting company. So, um, how did you decide what type of consulting services you were going to provide? That was that's uh, it, it was difficult. Um, because there was so many, well, again, what I kind of dealt with was I was with Pebble, but I was also with a couple other companies. And one mm -hmm. of them happened to be a tech company that I was the global head of industry for. And they had wanted to enter into the cannabis industry. So I helped them to do that. And I helped them validate and authenticate and kind of uh, help to influence the industry to, take, to, to accept them. And in that role, we happened to serve a purpose of connecting all of the different technology islands and data islands within an organization. And what I started to realize is, is in working with that company for three years, I worked with hundreds of different operators and got to interview and talk to everybody from plant botanists to mad scientists to, you know, different levels of operators. But what I realized is there was such a problem with people either selling technologies or solutions or doing things in that either weren't compliant or they weren't functional when it came to actually connecting and, and making making a, an operation more efficient and it started I started to realize that there was a lot of predatory nature when it came to how ancillaries operated and a lot of cases where somebody will, will sell something in, do it as fast as they can slam the trunk drive away and you've got an operator who spent a great deal of money on a solution that doesn't work for them and what started to what it really started to, to, to reopen my eyes to was the fact that operators really needed protection from um, the predatory nature of a lot of what the industry, what, what happens in this industry, which is people come in, they try and take advantage of it, they try to just pillage as fast as they can and make their money and run away. And we were actually compelled by uh, a lot of our peers um, in our network to say, there just needs to be something that, that can fix this. There's got to be a way to bridge the gap between compliance and revenue and have, have something that, have a, have a group of people that can come in and do that. And so our peers really were the ones that, that pushed us and, and, and encouraged us to do that. And that's when I had left uh, that technology company um, and decided that we were going to take on and create Indica. And Indica was really designed to help ethical companies navigate the landmines of the cannabis industry. And again, using our, our many 
decades of experience in our network, which we've created, which is called, we, we've actually put together over 55 different subject matter experts and thought leaders, which is called the Indica Collective. And all of these different experts are able to be brought in fractionally on projects to be able to use think, to create uh, think tanks, to create uh, fast solution oriented kind of things with some of the greatest experts of the industry. So um, that was really what, what our impetus was, was to create something that could protect operators, but also help raise the tide for the industry and help ancillary companies operate effectively, bring value, bring, bring, bring ethics, understand what the culture is of the industry, understand how to, how to navigate that, but how to support it and how to become part of it versus being on the outside of it and just trying to take shots in and do, and do those kind of things. So it, it's kind of both worlds as far as operating with, with the plant-touching businesses and then those that support them. So I have two questions um, for you. One, how do you, how do you identify someone who's predatory? Out of curiosity, it's, it's give me some give me some characteristics of a company or a group that may be predatory um, towards one of your clients. Sure, um, I could give an example of uh, don't name any names. No, no names at all. <laughs> I, I had a, uh, a gentleman or a, a group that was designing a facility. Okay, and they had reached out and said, "Hey, we're thinking about doing this. By the way, here's our layout." And I looked and I saw, I want to say at least 27 problems just initially with opening up the document and seeing what the, what the floor plan was. Everything from a bathroom opening up to a flower room to a this to a that, which instantly any, any person in the industry that has any sense of whatever should go, oh, this all needs to, there's a lot of things you need to fix. 11 different ancillary companies put in bids and put uh, full product and, and all these things as far as pitches to them saying this is ready to go after looking at their after, their, after looking at uh, their layouts and not one of them said a word about the problems that they were going to have from a compliance standpoint from uh, from even an installation standpoint from any of those kind of things and in all of that I knew all of those 11 companies and I happen to know that I dealt with those 11 companies and had similar situations in different projects throughout the years. This guy just happened to find all 11 on the wall at one time and got picked, it happened to pick up all. But one example, the first example I would say is when a, a, a ancillary company is more interested in their own well-being um, and interested in making a sale than doing it for the benefit of what their client does. It's, it's so important to be bringing value to the client and making sure that the client is gonna succeed versus just trying to, again, offload a sale and, and do that for the sake of, you know, the sale. So, I mean, I'm just thinking this through through my head is that for an average operator, if they are unable to identify these predatory um, practices, that's a lot of financial loss, wouldn't you say? Huge financial loss. And Forbes had put out uh, maybe a couple years ago that 80, I believe 84% of digital transformation projects, uh, initiatives fail. When you talk about the cannabis industry, it's higher than that. That equates to billions of dollars, billions of dollars across the course of the last decade that have been wasted, thrown away um, on hopes, dreams. That's why, again, operators are so skeptical now. To, it, it, sales cycles for ancillary companies are so long because it takes so much validation and so much social proof and so much trust before an operator will say, okay, we'll, we'll go with your, with your solution. And that, again, has to do with a lot of years of just un, uh, unscrupulous you know, practices of just trying to get as much money out of these operators and run away from them as they possibly can. Okay, so you've used the word solutions a couple of times mm -hmm. now in your rhetoric. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. 
to me, solutions is a very broad term. It is. Okay, it's a very broad term. Are we talking about operational solutions, administrative solutions? Are we talking about business strategies? Are we talking about strategic planning? Are we talking about marketing, business development? What type of solutions do you think that if I were to ask you, Travis, what are you guys really good at? We are very, very we, we touch on all of those again because of our collective. We can, we can bring in resources to work on a, a lot of different things for a client. But really what our focus is on, um, where we really shine is between, again, <laughs> creating a revenue generation plan or strategy okay. and being able to execute through that. So that can include sales, marketing, um, market validation, uh, just any of those kind of areas. And then the operational components to be able to execute it. If I was going to say, what do we do? We focus on the two big problems to what I talked about earlier as far as uh, project, uh, project failures is the lack of alignment and the lack of change management. It, it's a, our, our industry has been, you know, in a legacy sense, been around a long time in a, in, a, in, a, in a current model sense, is evolving all the time. You're dealing with so many different challenges of, of like you mentioned earlier, compliance in this jur jurisdiction versus that jurisdiction. And in your jurisdiction, it might change overnight because of who knows what happens. Um, but again, when you, when you do that, you need to have the alignment of not just are we in agreement inside of an organization, not just are we in agreement that we're going to do this project, but having all the different resources in place and knowing what those resources are going to be, knowing what those landmines are going to be. Um, from, again, that's one of the, the big values that we bring is having been through so much in all of the different things that we've worked on, we've seen what works and what doesn't work. And we know what the reality is when you're going to do something like this, but there's this little thing and this little thing and this little thing and all of that's going to do. An example would be changing latex gloves at a dispensary. Um, we had a client that decided to go from mm. black gloves to uh, light colored gloves because they were slightly cheaper. It, was, it made it economic sense. The amount of uh, kickback from the staff having to wear these ugly gloves versus having black created such a morale drop, created such a, an anger thing for, for so long that it, 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 was, it was a bad operational change to say they stepped over dollars to make pennies and realized that, again, just in that situation, there was something where the ripple effect of making a decision, while economically it might make sense to, to make save an extra $7,500 a year or something, the detriment to what it caused was something they wouldn't have foreseen. But, you know. No, I can totally relate. Um, I see that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, even with what I do with legal services, sure. people or businesses refuse to spend two, three thousand dollars, and then on the back end they incur something that's de more detrimental. That's you know they have to incur you know ten, twenty times that. Exactly. Right? Um, that's interesting. That about the gloves example um, is that is that in a, an adult use dispensary or is that in a medical dispensary or what type of dispensary is it? It was actually a split dispensary. They did both medical and recreational. So, okay. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, uh, I mean, that's, that's something very small and nuanced. You wouldn't really even think about it, mm -hmm. but, um, you mentioned morale. So what other, what other, um, aspects in the daily operations would impact say staff morale or what other small, items like that would ha would have a ripple effect as you alluded to earlier. Oh, it, it can be, it, 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 there's a lot of things. I mean, it could be something as small as let's say a, maybe the, the software that they're using, the software company decides to move a button. 
uh, on, on the screen that changes mm. changes their okay. workflow. All of a sudden, somebody can go from really liking something to I hate this software, and all of a sudden there becomes an entire mood around the entire uh, the entire organization that they happen to absolutely dislike this. Well, all of a sudden they stop using it now. Well, now you're putting yourself into a situation of maybe you're at a compliance risk, or maybe maybe things aren't getting documented the right way, or all of these different things. That little ripple effect of having uh, a, a vendor decide to change something slightly without understanding you know, why, what that ripple effect could be for an organization. It, it, it can touch on a lot of different things, so. So, um, what would, is it a fair statement to say that having your clients comply with what you consult or what you advise is pretty critical? I, I like be, to think Because you can't really force them to do anything, all. right? No, your absolutely. job is to say, hey, this is the problem. We've identified the gap. We've identified the deficiencies. This is the plan that you need to exercise in order to move forward. Mm -hmm. They don't always they don't always comply, do they? No. no, and that's part of what communication and trust is so important to build. Sure. Um, because you could have the best idea or the worst idea or whatever it is, but if whoever you're working with doesn't feel that it's it doesn't trust it, they don't they don't implement it, or they implement a third of what you suggest, and then they get frustrated that they didn't get the results that they wanted to. So we, a lot of times, and, and uh, across the board, when we work with people, we spend a great deal of time on the front end, having the time to really build that understanding and really, again, articulating out why, the whys of why you do certain things, not just the because, not just the trust me, this is gonna work, but being able to do that and also having the reasoning behind it, explaining those. You know what it really comes down to is asking questions that are difficult that most people don't ask. I ask a lot of questions and our teams ask a lot of questions of our clients that maybe our clients don't like answering or haven't even thought of. And that I think is where, when we're able to help them think through some of that stuff, I think that helps them feel, we, instead of being two people on opposite sides of a table, we move to the same side of the table and we're taking out a project together. And that's where, and along the way, it, it becomes difficult, it becomes easier to, to, to oh, we're not gonna do this part, we're gonna do this. that, that becomes our, pro that's, that's our specialty, is making sure people stay on task, stay with what it is, and execute across the board. Um, that's the change management part, is because if there is an adoption of the solution, if there's only partial adoption, if there isn't the resources to do it, if there isn't a plan for it, and a way to implement. Again, you, I mean, you, I'll use software as an example, but if you, if you put in a software and the team doesn't enjoy it or it becomes an obstacle or it's, it's something along those lines, it becomes a detriment. And it's not about if you're spending $5,000 or $500,000 on what it is. It has to do with is what this is doing actually benefiting your business in, in, a, in a positive way. So other than non-compliance, what else would you say makes a client kind of a nightmare? Be candid. Um, it, it, one of the things, like you'd mentioned, is is uh, you know not following through with what the plans are. Um, one of the things also is uh, I would say the lack of transparency when you're when you're trying to solve a problem. Um, if you if you cannot get to the point of really finding out what is going on and you're getting answered to the, the spurious type of information, it makes it really difficult to solve it. And a lot of times in the industry, people, their egos or their embarrassment don't like to say, we're scared, we're afraid, we've, we've screwed up, we don't know how to solve it. And they try and come, or, or they're in the middle of something and they don't, they don't acknowledge that something has happened and all of a sudden you find out a week later or two weeks later that, right. oh, well, this did happen two weeks ago. It's like, had you told us that that hour, 
we would have had a completely different path. Now you're in triage, now you're trying to fix stuff. And it is, like we talked earlier, making a decision like that ends up costing so much more in the long run. And we want to, we want to, we, we're very, very good. Uh, we are not, uh, we are not an inexpensive solution, but we are a very, very valuable solution that has always ended up being uh, a, a positive for every one of our clients thus far, you know, thankfully. Um, but being able to do it right within a budget that fits somebody's uh, organization saves them so much in the long run as far as long-term problems. Have you ever had a client um, encounter a problem, you give them a solution, they implemented it, um, they didn't like the results, they fire you, but then later on they actually got worse results and they had to rehire you back. Has that ever happened? Absolutely it has. Um, okay. I, I've, I've seen that. I've, I've to me, that. that is actually one... Uh, to me, that 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 would be kind of a nightmare client. It it can be it can be very difficult. Um, it's also satisfying um, to realize that, you know, it, it helps build that bond and it actually builds the trust. So that it can be a really really frustrating um, period of time going through that while it's happening. But that that brings it back around to when they go, oh, whoops, they really did have our best interest at heart, at heart yeah. and they come back and they realize. We're going to follow what you say now because it did work before. We tried to do it on our way. We had one at MJ Biz that had right. come back around to us and had said, "Yeah, we really, really made a mistake um, thinking we could do this on our own. We really need you back as soon as possible." So we're, you know, going back to, to help work with them. So, so give me an example of the type of clients you usually work with, or um, because as, as we said earlier, it's it's a supply chain driven industry. Mm -hmm. So you have everything from cultivators to processors to retailers and everything in between and transportation companies and so forth. What, where along the supply chain do you usually play in? We actually operate, well, with the plant touching businesses, we provide services for, uh, for all areas, actually. One of, the, one of the initial services that we tend to bring uh, and that people take advantage of is we, bring, we provide metric training. Metric is the software for the industry that is the track and trace for, I think, 32 states uh, right now. Um, very, very crucial. Uh, it's the backbone of compliance across those. But unfortunately, they don't. That company doesn't have really any training available other than some videos. And people have learned to operate that software, one of the most important softwares, um, by figuring it out on their own, or maybe doing it wrong, or figuring it out from somebody who, before them who did it wrong and trained them. But we, for the first time, have created an instructor-led uh, metric training program that people are actually able to be in, learn things. So we work with cultivators, uh, processors, retail, transportation, uh, any of those type of things, anybody, you know, law groups, um, enterprise organizations, small, you know, small organizations, but everybody who needs that training is able to come in and experience that. From there, um, from the plant side, we uh, tend to focus on cultivation, processing, and retail, mm -hmm. um, mainly because that happens to be uh, a lot of the experience within our team, but at the same time, too, those tend to be the most needed areas where there's so many problems or challenges or those kind of things. Um, and in uh, uh, kind of bringing that around, when we go to the ancillary side, we spend a great deal of time trying to make sure that they don't, again, create a ripple effect with, with that type of, uh, that side of the thing that causes, that causes a lot of problems. So. so when you got this company started, Indica, mm -hmm. um, by the way, who who named it? I'm just curious. We we did actually at the at the same moment. We were one night. It was late at night. We were, we were looking up just URLs, and we discovered that this one happened to be available. And we happened to discover that somebody had 
had it years and years and years ago for a completely business, separate business long outside of uh, cannabis. Mm -hmm. And we thought we wanted, we wanted to use that name, but we never thought in the world that the URL would be available. And we happened to grab it. It was there. It was fantastic. We actually had, uh, we bought it. And the next day we talked to GoDaddy to get some stuff set up. And the broker of that said, how in the world did you, how could this have possibly been available? This right. is insane. So, um, but that was kind of, yeah, the inception was, was very much a hope, dream, and a lucky thing where we did a search online and found that it was something we could do. How fortuitous. Yeah. Um, so tell me about some of the challenges and what, what were some of the steps that you took to start your comp uh, yeah. consulting company? Because I want people who are listening to this to understand both the good, bad, and ugly mm -hmm. and, uh, and the hard work you had to put in to, to get this started, right? Yeah, it's, it is not an easy journey. Um, again, starting out anything uh, when you are going on your own or starting out something as an, as an organization, um, you're talking long days, uh, lots of stress, lots of worry. Uh, when you talk about trying to do that inside the cannabis industry, multiply that times 10 because there's so many challenges. The first thing that uh, we did was actually contact you. Okay. Um, that was that was one of the because again as far as anything that we do we live in the world of, of doing it right and doing it compliantly we do not cut corners and we do not um, take risks I mean you can't we can't be uh, compliance experts and operational experts and, and and do something wrong so the first first thing was to talk to you about it okay. and that's where we looked at what you know what are our risks what are our challenges what are um, what does the lay of the land look like for a business like ours. And are, you know, are we, by being blatantly open about what we do as far as operating the cannabis industry, what type of liability are we putting ourselves at from a business standpoint, you know, as far right. as getting credit card processing or getting, you know, our insurance company is going to talk to us, all those sure. kind of things that came to be. And, but the, the, the first thing that we wanted to have was uh, excellent legal representation because that's, that's something that I, I, and I recommend to every one of my clients and every single person that I talk to is that if you're going to operate in this business and, and have a company in this business, you need to have legal representation because of, again, you could, you could speak to this far better than I can, but all of the myriads of challenges from a legal right. standpoint. Um, the next thing was kind of looking at how do we put together the, the infrastructure of our organization and do it in a quick way that is uh, needing to be nimble because an organization, when you first start out, needs to be able to flex around. The in our industry alone changes so much um, that you have to be able to pivot sometimes on a dime and sometimes within a week have to change things and have different plans. But we needed to have something where we had enough organization to take on what we know was going to be an influx of, of uh, clients and, and uh, folks just from our network alone because we knew how many people were going to be reaching out to us. So getting that type of... Uh, data and organization able to make sure that we, when we did manage projects or take on clients or things like that, that we had a, a through line that really carried us from, from, you know, inception of a project all the way to the end and making sure that we're able to do all the things that are necessary and having the same thing we would do with our clients, making sure we had every single needed resource available, identified, and within grasp when needed to be able to kind of accomplish what those goals were. Um, and the third thing I would say is not giving up because that that founder roller coaster or the founder sine wave that people talk about as far as ups downs ins and outs boy you will feel it in the cannabis industry and uh, some days I question what I'm doing some days I love what I'm doing but it's it's uh, there's always that when it comes to going you know starting out a business and trying to do that and it's it's something where over the course of a year or two you will have those ups and downs and you need to stick strong and, and really believe in what you're doing and find again when you're when you're when you are 
uh, struggling, you need to find the resources and the, and, and the support for yourself, um, for your organization to, and being candid, saying, I need help. Um, and again, one of the challenges that our clients, it takes a long time for them to be able to admit it sometimes. But getting somebody to say, I need help, or myself saying, I need help, and finding the resources to do it, that's something that's just crucial to being able to succeed. So did you, uh, did you experience any banking challenges or any of those um, payment oh. processing challenges that we talked about? Or tell me about some of the operational challenges yeah. that you had. Um, it, it's been uh, a very, very unique challenge as far as banking and, and uh, payment processing and all of those type of areas. Um, luckily, again, you were a resource that helped us find our, our banking. Uh, oh, good. With, uh, I'm glad. That, yeah, that was, that was, yeah, that was uh, uh, again, another, another reason why you were, you were so crucial for us. Um, but we went through multiple banks and, and uh, across the country trying to speak to folks, banks that we've worked with, uh, even looking at uh, trying to trying to explain to banks that at, at one point we were considering maybe we'll just operate with hemp and not let not touch cannabis or the, the, that side, and even with hemp operators, even though it's federally illegal, even though the, the farm bill made it, banks still wouldn't touch it. Credit unions still wouldn't want to touch it. Mm -hmm. uh, we found a bank that was that's fabulous and, and supported us, but then our next challenge was payment processing. Yeah, um, being able to take payments not only from uh, a licensed operator but from ancillary companies. Um, was was a daunting daunting task and what was you actually uniquely enough we just recently uh solved that problem um but what was interesting enough was that in talking to the payment processors it was not so much the cannabis related situation as much as it was a consulting situation that was a that oh. was a concern okay because unbeknownst to a lot of things that putting those two hands together that have unless you have an exact di uh, uh, description of what a service is you know, like a, I'm selling this one little thing. Well, consulting's not always like that. Consulting's a project. Sometimes consulting can be open-ended hours, sometimes those kind of things. And learning that, uh, that, that double whammy of being a consultant along with being in the cannabis industry really, really tightened up uh, a lot of people's uh, interest in far, as far as being able to provide uh, services. And that's where we would have these conversations with, with payment processing companies go, literally, we teach companies how to be compliant, how not to do that. Right, right. And they would go, that sounds wonderful. Unfortunately, can't do anything with it. And so, yeah, it was it was a big challenge to try to solve that. That, you, that was a, uh, that kept us up a lot of nights trying to figure those things out because we would have clients that, you know, would need to need to make payments of, of five figures and, you know, need to run a credit card and need to be able to do those yeah. kind of things. And all of a sudden, when you can't do that, that's a real big struggle for for a small organization um, to to make sure that you're able to fulfill that need. Getting paid is really important. So, speaking of which, have you guys ever been stiffed? Yeah. You have, mm -hmm. and what did you do about that? Um, we had a good conversation with that client. Um, it was not something where they were trying to. They ran into some challenges on their end. Again, they made some. They'd gone away from what we'd suggested to do. They took a couple gambles, uh, lost their butt on it. Um, but what we did was we turned it around into a positive and actually worked on case studies and a lot of uh, uh, mutual kind of support that would help to offset uh, what, the, what the loss was. Um, but that's a risk all the time, especially in this industry, because companies yeah. can come and go really quickly. It's very difficult yeah. to enforce contracts in a lot of ways. It's difficult to collect money when, you know, when, a, when an operator doesn't have a banking account because they're throwing everything in a vault. How do you, how do you try and acquire and go after a situation like that or with an ancillary company? Um, sometimes there's the, you, you kind of have to look at what, what matters more. 
is it, is it that is it that, that amount of money or is it what you can actually again most of the time when I've ever dealt with that in other careers or, or other areas is having the conversation with that coming to a solution that mutually benefits everybody versus trying to hammer down on something or walk away and you know, kick the dirt that's that's never a fun thing to do you as a consulting company do you ever take upfront retainer fees yep upfront absolutely yeah uh, that's a lot of about half, well, again, half of our business is working with ancillaries. The other half is with plant operators. Yeah. Um, when we're operating, we, we do offer a service. It's called the virtual vice president. It's a fractional service where we can come in and step in and help with strategy, operations, compliance at a fractional level that helps uh, small and mid-level businesses be able to have an expertise without having, you know, a six-figure, seven-figure, six-figure, mid-six-figure kind of payroll to have a chief marketing officer or a chief sales officer or something like that. Um, but in those situations, yeah, we set up a retainer uh, relationship or um, it, it's typically what we try and always do is have, uh, you know, payment or things like that in advance of what the services are. Not always, you know, it can't always work like that. And that, that again comes to be trust as far as our clients as we go along, if, if things need to be adjusted or things like that and everything's been moving well, we, you know, we get flexible. So Yeah. Um, so let's pivot a little bit. And talk about the industry itself. I yeah. mean, you, we've talked about you serving the plant touching industry. It, it sounds like to me, I don't want to make any assumptions, but it sounds like you do some work in perhaps Oklahoma and outside of Texas, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, most of our work is, is around the country. Um, yeah. We do some, some within Texas, but, but we actually split time between Denver and uh, Austin, Texas, as far as, uh, yeah. Our, but yeah, um, yep, all, all over. Okay, so in, in your opinion, this is obviously just through Travis's perspective. Um, how do you think the industry has changed over time since you've been involved? Now, granted, you got involved on the legacy side, right. and it was, it's been a while. But um, let's just say in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, how, how do you see the – how have you seen the industry evolve and change? And how do you see it continuing, continuing to change uh, that, um, that takes us into that next generation? Mm -hmm. uh, initially, again, you look back at – Let's just go back to, let's say, 20. We don't have to go back 10 or 15 years. We can go back six, five, six years, seven years. Right. Um, because it changes at, at light speed, yeah. right? So. But in, uh, like, as an example, in 2015 or 2016, um, working with uh, cultivators and looking at technology, um, everything had always been done underground. Nobody really shared experience. Nobody, you couldn't really document. Uh, processes and, and that, that was literally a felony waiting to happen if you documented what you did as far as your grow. Um, but starting when, when the legal side came to be and uh, operators were able to start exploring technologies um, or exploring or again receiving massive funds and then having this investment to go out and spend, I, had, I would have conversations with chief operating officers that had received $100 million in, uh, you know, in, in investment and they would read you know, something that I'd written and they go, you keep talking about this ROI thing. What is this ROI thing? I'm like, ROI? Oh, your chief operating officer of an organization has $100 million in your war chest and you don't know what ROI means. Okay, this, wow. this is scary. Um, that's evolved where people are getting much more business savvy and much more understandable along those lines. Um, one of the things that hasn't changed and, and we're feeling it right now in the industry is that with, the, with the big downturn in, uh, in uh, cannabis prices, wholesale price, cannabis prices, it's put a real pain on the industry. While a lot of the operators that haven't spent the time focusing on their data or focusing on being efficient in what they do 
are feeling extreme pains right now. If they're growing and they're trying, you know, it's costing them $1,500 to grow a pound of product and on the market it's going for $1,200, obviously that's, that's, not, that's not sustainable, it's not feasible. Um, so seeing people go from just spend whatever they want to and who cares because cannabis is gonna sell for a, you know, a lot of money to actually having to right now really get efficient and really focus on things, that's a big thing that's changed. Um, but I think one of the things that I've seen is that over the course of, again, five, six, seven years, so many companies came in, uh, venture-backed companies or, or whatnot, came in and, and tried to be so big so fast and thinking that they were, that be, by being big, they were going to be able to own the market or take over the market or do those kind of things. And we've seen organization after organization after organization of these large sizes that didn't have the expertise, didn't respect the culture, didn't necessarily even tap into the, into the history of the legacy industry to do those things really crash and burn. Um, Canada's a great example of a lot of those major companies are dwindling and dwindling when you watch the stock prices and you look at their, at their statements as far as uh, valuation and where they're at right now. Um, and what I think I'm seeing and what I really appreciate seeing is that there's a new renaissance and appreciation for the craft grower and the artist, the artisan uh, type product, and especially in the last year and a half, maybe, maybe two years, but where there's a newfound respect from what is the current legal legal industry to all of a sudden looking and realizing that these folks that were that had built and created the industry to begin with yeah. and really done that that they're no longer being pushed to the side as as uh, you know inconsequential or inconvenient they're realizing that bringing in that talent bringing in that knowledge bringing in that skill set um, changes the way their businesses operate but I love seeing that the small farmer um, creating a really high quality product is being able to differentiate themselves on the market or the, or the processor or the retail that creates an experience that is unique is really being able to create something that is uh, business sustainable for themselves and they can be profitable and they can do that but that has to do with being you know being what makes them wonderful and being able to identify and, and articulate that out. And I think that that's one of the exciting things that I see is that the industry didn't just fall into the hands of the largest, biggest thing that can make the most at the same time. Um, it, it became something where there still is the craft quality of what it is. And uh, you know that, 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 that's really exciting to me. You know, it's interesting because uh, I've talked to uh, different, different types of people and you know uh, different groups within the industry. and. You know, you talk to one group, which are um, the people who have the capital mm -hmm. and have very little institutional knowledge of the industry. And then conversely, you talk to um, the people who do have that, in, that knowledge. And it's really a good marriage if they can make it work. Right? I completely agree. Um, it's yeah. a really good marriage if they can make it work. The problem is making it work. And uh, one side thinks the other side doesn't have the institutional knowledge, but they do have the capital. Conversely, the, the, the capital side look at uh, look at the, uh, the 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 legacy people or the people who have the in industry knowledge that may lack the capital or maybe some level of sophistication. But I think it's really important if both sides can realize they kind of need each other. Very much and, so. Um, if they can make each other better, it, it makes the industry better. That's really what we need, in my opinion. Um, but getting there is it can be uh, challenging. Absolutely, it can be. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so, it sounds like you you've worked with uh, grow uh, cultivators. You've worked with retailers, processors. Have you worked with um, uh, the hemp industry in Texas, uh, along with just the, the the products that's kind of spinning off of that market, such yes. as your 
um, your beverages or your uh, your candies and uh, different uh, hemp cannabinoid based products. Right. Is that something you get involved with? It is, um, and it's not, not only just in Texas, but but across the country. Um, and it's been uh, a very wild, you know, year or two uh, as far as like you said, some of the spinoff products, some of the things that have come to the market. Delta Eight is is a big you know sure. conversation. Looking at um, creating uh, edibles that are that are, have Delta Nine THC based off of weight. That was that's a whole big thing that you know has been a oh, challenge yeah. for people realizing all of a sudden you could buy a twenty five milligram edible if as long as it's sized up large enough to do that. If as long as it's made from hemp, well that changed the game in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden you're you're relying on uh, when you're talking about doing those kind of things from a compliance standpoint. A lot of those first movers that did that. Um, took big risks and still are taking risks in some senses with, with uh, you know, pushing those products out. Minnesota happens to be a state where they've, they've articulatedly legalized uh, Delta 9 hemp and, and, and that you know, changed some things. Other states, uh, Texas kind of turned, you know, is, is trying to figure that out still as far as understanding that. Um, but when you, when you look at it from a compliance <laughs> standpoint, there, there's, hemp has, a, has, a, has this really unique kind of trouble, which is there's not a tremendous amount of money within hemp itself. So people, not to say get desperate, but they get creative when it comes to how do I sell my product? How do I figure that kind of thing out? And the biggest concern that I see with, with the hemp market that we work with is making sure operators don't cut uh, corners when it comes to making sure you have a safe uh, product and, and, a, and a tested and true product and making sure that and how do you do that because um, the variation of the products in the market is so broad it is and the um, variation there's some really and, good ones and there's some quite frankly really bad ones well and there's that that comes down to a lot of well that's such a huge that's such a huge uh, how do you fix the the hemp industry that's problem. a loaded that's question a isn't huge it huge problem yeah one of the biggest challenges is, is uh, and it's becoming very very uh, openly discussed now especially if anybody's on linkedin but looking at testing fraud um, understanding that there are uh, labs that do great work there are labs that don't do great work um, there are labs that do great that that have the best intentions of doing great work and they can't live up to it a lot of times. Um, the the methodologies or the, uh, the you could have you could have the same product tested by the same lab and have three different results sometimes, and that has to do with the technology needing to catch up. That's one of the first things is that testing has to be there. Right. Another big thing is that state by state versus uh, federal uh, run standards and compliance and things like that. We've got to sort that out. It's got to be figured out. It can't live. The, the entire world lives in the gray area still. Um, so trying to trying to trying to live within the stay within the the borders of whatever is legal when there really aren't borders around it becomes something really really difficult to do for people. So um, there's 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 a lot that needs to be kind of changed and sorted through. And I think again it, we need a unif we need a unified hemp industry to help motivate those changes. And I think it requires those good operators to raise the tide for themselves, stand up. You know, again, one of the things about Pebble as an example is that we had higher standards and still have higher standards than uh, almost any uh, operator, HEP operator that I know of. I mean, having pharmaceutical level variances, having triple testing, having all of those kind of things, that had nothing to do with regulations. That had to do with what our ethics were and our standards were and requiring. Well, I mean, that's the difference best. between what's mandated and best practices in the culture of a company. It is. It so, is. I mean, that, that's a, those are two very different, uh, different issues, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to push it a little bit further. What do you know about, um, products in the hemp cannabinoid industry that uses spray on 
but the hemp can, but the cannabinoid isn't really hemp derived. Oh yeah, um, that that happens. This, this is a dirty little little rumor. It's a, it's, a, it's it's. But can can you? Um, I don't want you to verify with any names, obviously. But tell me, t- let's talk a little bit about that. It happens. Uh, as an example, flour, smoke old flour gets a lot of times what people are doing. Uh, taking hemp, spraying it, like you said, with a with a delta eight or a delta nine um, uh, product. Um, a lot of times, what you're seeing is uh, even cannabis that is just badly grown being sprayed and called hemp, and, you, and, and having false. Seed That's the one I'm talking yeah, about. That because then, what's happening if you think about it? If you're doing the spray on with just um, cannabis that's not defined as hemp, which is essentially marijuana mm-hmm. under the Controlled Substances Act, then you're using spray on cannabinoids derived from an illegal substance mm-hmm. onto what is portrayed as a, a federally legal substance because you're calling it hemp cannabinoids when in actuality it may not have derived from hemp absolutely okay. absolutely so again i'm just a lawyer i want i want to hear from the expert but that is a dirty little rumor that, mm-hmm. that goes around it, right? it, is, it is happening I've, I, I, I i've been been aware of that and it's it's one of the Honestly, I think one of the worst things that, that's going on in the industry, um, it's, it, part, part of it is, is just safety, um, sure. not knowing what the quality is. And, and those, those operators that are doing that typically are those that are cutting corners, and they're not necessarily making sure it's the most yeah. pure, safe kind of product that's on there. So you're dealing with pesticides, you're dealing with all sorts of different after effects of creating a concentrate that's sprayed onto something. Yep. That, that concentrates not just the THC quality, but it concentrates the heavy metals. It concentrates those things. Oh, yeah. If you're not paying attention to those things, then you're creating something that can cause a lot of damage for people. Sure. So, Well, we're, um, we're approaching an hour, so let's, let's get down to it. Um, this, is, this is the lightning round. What's next for Travis, Carsey, and Indica? One of What's the big, next, yeah. Um, well, like I mentioned, we we launched recently the uh, the metric training program, and we're going to be expanding that quite a bit. Um, very excited about that. We're actually working directly with Metric and several other operators to, or several other uh, ancillaries to help push that across the industry and create that. But one of the big exciting things we're working on is creating uh, the Indica Consulting Research Center. Um, and what we're looking to do, and we've we've actually done our proof of concept initially this past year, but what we are uh, looking to create initially is a cultivation technology solution uh, evaluation center, 10,000 square feet, that would allow different chambers to be able to not only validate and vet technology, but help to create technology recipes that will actually be able to be implementable in an instant way, um, instead of, a, of a, an operator having to understand and figure out 30 different moving parts and trying to make it and taking them three years to get their grow room to actually grow like they wanted to or their processing to actually operate, having a turnkey SOP that comes in. Um, Having this facility would give operators the ability to to have a unique kind of space to to test something out without disrupting their operations. But on the other end, kind of a consumer reports meets Port America's idea is for the, for the, uh, the ancillary companies that struggle again we talked earlier on about the long sales cycles or trying to build trust or trying to prove what they can do there's so much promise and very little proof uh, when it comes from ancillaries that try to sell into there we want to be able to help them prove out their solutions and be able to do that and help them understand not only what the real factors are that happen inside of a, a, a cultivation or inside of a product. Again, well, we, want, we plan on starting with cultivation and then creating a processing and then creating a retail um, area. But initially being able to do that, but helping those ancillaries not only understand that, but understand those ripple effects and those change management effects that they need to go in and be able to, to speak to their clients about before mm-hmm. they're taking on projects and be able to really come in and, and, uh, and do a better job of, of supporting that, that part of the industry. 
Okay, very good. Um, well, Travis, it was so wonderful talking to you. I don't think I think this is the most you and I have talked in a long time. I think so. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad we had a chance to catch up, and uh, thank you for making the drive up to Dallas for this podcast. And um, on behalf of the Sativa segment, we thank you. Thank you, Richard. This has been fantastic. All right. Good talking to you.